Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trondarne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 50 of the podcast, the topic is the future of corporate venturing. Our guest is James Mawson, CEO and founder of Mawsonia, the publishing company producing global corporate venturing. In this conversation, we talk about the current state and the future of corporate venturing, the activity of big corporations who invest in startups in various ways during and post-COVID-19. A word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talents from thousands of experts across industries and markets, including financial services, education, software, energy, healthcare, and life science. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Jim, how are you today? Very well, Trond. It's a great pleasure to be back once again and chatting with you. Yeah, I thought um, I thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about uh, corporate mentoring. Well, uh, I've certainly spent the past 10 years uh, learning a little bit about it, and I've had a great pleasure to work with some amazing people. So how can I help? What, what do you want to know? Well, first, I wanted to chat a little bit about, about you. You know, it's... Um, it's interesting to uh, uh, to track kind of your your path into corporate venturing. M- maybe you can en- enlighten me actually on how, how you got got into this game. Sure, happy to do so. Gosh, it's uh, feels a while ago, but um, it was just I used to be the private equity and venture capital editor over at Dow Jones, so publishing various trade papers and uh, obviously some of the reporting going up to other areas that Dow Jones does, such as the Wall Street Journal or Dow Jones Newswires. But we really only covered, and this is the sort of 2006 to 2010 period, we only really covered the independent venture capital and private equity firms. The, the main names you would know, like a Sequoia or an Axel or Blackstone and KKR, raising money primarily from institutional limited partners, the big pension funds, life assurers and banks. And what I had a view was, was that coming out of the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, was that we would start to see much more interest in the use of innovation to grow the equity part of a company, and then from there they'd be able to borrow more money at more favourable terms. I thought the, the debt would start to commoditize, and that the differentiator going forward, coming out of the financial crisis, would be the equity piece. And how do you grow the equity story? Obviously, if you look at basic economics, there's human capital, physical capital, and innovation. And so very much I viewed that sort of strategic interest in that innovation piece from corporations, governments and universities in particular would start to mean that the traditional providers of capital to the fast growing entrepreneurs, the VCs, would be joined and complemented by corporate venture capital. So I decided to leave Dow Jones, handed in my notice, uh, which wasn't a particularly obvious thing to do in 2009, 2010. And so I left to set up... um, global corporate venturing out of a publishing company called More Senior, alongside a couple of other sister titles called Global University Venturing and Global Impact Venturing, which picks up more around the government piece. 
Yeah, so Jim, uh, you know, this is, it is interesting that you kind of left a financial media business to sort of build build another financial media business, I guess. <laughs> Much gambling cool. on, well, you know, gambling on a trend uh, of, of investment, as, as you said, that, that has become actually quite important. But, you know, you graduated King's College uh, London, and so is it true that you basically spent uh, the... Uh, all of your time in media after you graduated. So it's basically from media to corporate venturing. That's that's your path here. Pretty well much. I've kind of stayed within media ever since, as you say, graduating. But uh, it was kind of uh, a slightly random path into it. Perhaps uh, uh, I think you might uh, throw your hands up in despair at me, Trond, in some ways. But I, I did war studies and history at King's in London, which is uh, a great university for both subjects. Um, actually, I was really honoured to go there. In fact, I was a fairly terrible student. Um, so coming out of my final exam, I didn't really know what I should be doing. So I opened a local paper in London, which is called the Evening Standard. Uh, and there was a job doing research for a publishing company. So I applied for that and I kind of pretty well much started the following week. And, uh, and so I worked there and because it was a publishing company, they shunted me around a little bit within the organisation, and they tried me out on the news desk, mainly because my writing was so terrible for these reports that they thought that by becoming a journalist, they might speed up and improve my writing. And, uh, and uh, you know, um, so I kind of stayed within um, journalism ever since, really. I, uh, I did a night class in journalism and, uh, and then ended up at the Financial Times business, uh, then was a foreign correspondent and did some work for The Economist and Independent on Sunday and, you know, various other national and trade papers and um, and then ended up being made uh, editor over at, um, at a publication called Private Equity News and Financial News, which was acquired by Dow Jones. Uh, and then I stayed there for a few years. So, yeah, it's not that. What, what, not is, there in, hmm, what is there in war studies that, that uh, has, uh, has that taught you anything about, you know, about corporate venturing? Um, actually, surprisingly, more than you would expect, actually. Um, so, like, there's a great you know, view on sort of war studies, which is, you know, why do wars start and, you know, how do they end? And then, you know, what goes on in between it? But effectively, it covers everything within society and history. So the reason I chose war studies was because I quite enjoyed history at school and uh, I viewed the war studies as the most interesting bits. But by looking at war studies, you look at everything. You look at people, psychology, physiology. You look at societies and grain and iron production. You look, obviously, at battles and human character uh, and technology and everything within it. So, But the sort of main bit that I kind of – that stuck with me in some ways, Trond, was this idea that – Really, if you think about why things happen or what goes on to happen, you think around the aims. What do you want to achieve? You think about a strategy to achieve those aims and then the tactics of day-to-day -day delivery on that. And actually, in many ways, startups and investment is effectively following that same sort of approach. But you know, what I found interesting is that it's not obvious to people that they're following that approach. And so I think it's relatively simplistically you know that's my level of academic quality and rigor i would say that and i would caution anyone not to follow too closely what i say in that regard Trons. but you know but to my simplistic way of thinking about it if you can understand you know the aims of what people are trying to achieve and then the strategy of how they go about to do it 
and then how they go about day to day, then actually that's quite a good basis for asking questions, which is journalism. There's only five questions, really. Who, what, where, when, why and how was that six? Um, well, uh, yeah. Well, well, as you know, uh, uh, Jim, I've been fortunate enough to attend, uh, you know, many of your excellent convening conferences of this community, and you are basically the prime convener of a global community. So that is no small, that is small, uh, no small achievement. And let, let's talk about that in detail. But first, this whole war studies detour here makes me actually now understand more about the subtitle of your recent book on corporate venturing a survival guide because <laughs> you know that's how this language gets in the, gets in there i guess you say something there which i found as an interesting kind of gateway into this I guess maybe we can call it a market because you say it's not the biggest or the fastest that survive, but it's the most adaptable to change. And I, I believe you're probably quoting someone there. But why was that so important to you when you uh, create this guide on, on corporate venturing to say that? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, um, there's very little that uh, that's original in my brain, Tron. So uh, standing on the shoulders of giants is a good way to approach it. And that's a quote from sort of Isaac Newton. But the quote within the book, you know, it's not the you know, the strongest, but it's the, or the fastest, but it's the most adaptable is actually um, uh, from Darwin. Um, so when he was doing right. the origin of the species, you know, he was looking at people and thinking about it. So it was attributed to Darwin by some people anyway. Um, but the point is, in, in, in real life corporate venturing, you have observed over these 10 plus years that it, this really plays out in corporate venturing. Yeah, I mean, so it is interesting. So a lot of people start a corporate venturing program and it's usually, you know, some executive decision, CEO signs off. The CFO has to agree to financing, you know, and they go, right, we need to understand what's happening outside of our four walls. What are the entrepreneurs doing? How does that complement or understand or impact our traditional innovation tools, which have been mainly R&D or research and development and mergers and acquisitions, the M&A piece. And so this sort of idea, you know, that people like, you know, Henry Chesborough or Clay Christensen had maybe a and later part of the 1990s, took about 10 years to really filter out in many ways. And in many ways, I view it that corporations, all corporations are going through this process of understanding what the outside world is doing and how they can use it, either to understand disruptive threats or the opportunities that are created. But actually, their starting point isn't how they end up. And it's not trying to say we've got the biggest fund at the starter's point, or we're going to move fastest and we're going to sort of really disrupt that actually end up on the whole being the most successful. The groups that are more successful, and there's about 600 corporate venturing units with more than a 10-year track record. So there's a lot of evidence out there to say that the groups that are most successful that have started in the 70s or the 60s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, or even now in a more recently in the past 10 years, the ones that are successful, the ones that understand they need to adapt and evolve, their starting point isn't the end point. And I think too often people say, right, we've got to make a statement. We've got to start with a billion dollar fund. We've got to announce a big team. We've got to announce the areas that we're going to go into. And then you look at them 10 years later, and if they're still going, and it's not always the case that they are, but if they're still going, they've often evolved. They be their structures evolved, the teams evolved. 
the areas of focus involved, how they work with their business units, how they work with the entrepreneurs, all that changes and evolves. Not necessarily, you know, to one perfect answer, but the book, The Corporate Venture and Survival Guide that you referenced, Trond, is trying to give a sense of how that evolution or maturation can develop. Yeah. I don't know uh, to what extent you'd, you'd like to go into individual examples, because I know, you know, for you, they're all they're all your members and, and they're all treasured, you know, friendships and stuff. But if we just loosely look at one, uh, which I found pretty instructive, just look at the history of GE Ventures yeah. and, and even just the recent history. And, and I'm just going to, you know, uh, admit that I, I haven't really tracked their entire life cycle. But if you just look at the fa last few years, uh, and this will bring us incidentally to to your uh, power list, because they were for for the years that I came in and looked at that power list, they were kind of a poster child success yeah. story. And for anybody who has studied business, GE is a company that you would say they are a survivor, right? They are on the other Jim Collins's book, you know, a list of kind of survivor companies. They are really, uh, you know, they, they tend to survive a lot of change. In this particular case, something, uh, and maybe you have more of, a, of an explanation that, that's more advanced than, than mine, but regardless of being basically on top of some of, uh, you know, your ranking lists and, and, and basically, arguably, their companies in the portfolio, I think up to 100 of them now, yeah. were doing pretty well, although early in the cycle, then the decision is somehow made to get rid of the entire portfolio. And, and I haven't really tracked it in detail, so I don't know what their next plan is with venturing or to what extent this is just, you know, it's obviously just one part of a kind of a focus on, on early stage venturing in, in, you know, in the life cycle of GE as a company. So I'm not to say that this is the end point, but how do you, how do you understand what happens around GE when it comes to venturing? Yeah, great question. I mean, there are a poster child in many ways for many reasons, John, just spot on. So there's a little bit of context to the sort of G ventures that, you know, that would have been sort of within the power list rankings for global corporate venturing over the past few years or had been. Uh, so before that, obviously, GE through the 90s and 2000s in particular, you know, under Jack Welsh and others, really built up their financial services piece, what was GE Capital. You know, and in many ways, if you're looking at some of the books that come out from you know the Wall Street Journal reporters or others, you know, they very much sort of point to this sort of financialization of GE as a whole and trying to meet the quarterly estimates or just be it by a fraction, you know, and trying to massage things to make that happen, you know, was a was a challenge going into the financial crisis 2008-9. So GE Capital had a ventures unit. Within that, they were doing some deals as part of this much larger financial sort of unit which was big you know uh up until sort of 2008 and then they basically said whoa we're actually meant to be an industrial company with these different divisions power aerospace whatever it might be healthcare you know and so they kind of stripped out the GE capital and started to sort of wind that down a little bit but it made the company in effect lose a little bit of its sort of rigor in terms of understanding how different units were going to deliver their quarterly earnings. And so the period of the 2010s, in some ways, is this idea of GE Ventures being set up as a, you know, effectively a very well-run 
corporate venture capital unit looking at innovation more widely under Sue Siegel. They had Marianne Wu, so they had sort of professional ex-venture capital managers coming in to help the corporate business units understand some of the innovation trends and how they could get on top when their core, in effect, buffering platform, GE Capital, was no longer really in place as well. And so they built up, as you say, a sort of unit about 100 odd deals. They had a really strong team, probably had 40 or 50 people at its height in terms of looking at licensing, looking at ventures, looking at business creation, acceleration, how they can help their business corporate business units expand and develop. And so they were covering a wide range of areas. So they had a great team. They had a great mandate. You know, they had some great investments. They had a great name behind them, obviously. And at the time, they they were given, in effect, the balance sheet. GE being around 100 plus years and, you know, they had been told effectively, you don't need to worry about having a specific set amount of capital because we're GE. We'll always have enough money. Effectively, you're around in error. And so they sort of invested 100 odd deals. They probably put out, you know, a few hundred million dollars of capital. And then when the problems hit with the power unit and they suddenly went, my God, we've, we've just lost this money. We need to claw stuff back. In effect, the finance people went, we need to find things that we can sell. What assets do we have that we can sell? They can break up parts of their company, the business units and split it up in some ways, but we need to find money. So they did in many ways, what is, you know, a, you know, a potential pitfall for a lot of corporations which don't have a specific committed capital to go with a specific committed team of CVC professionals is that they then said, right, you can't do any more deals and we're going to look to sell your portfolio companies as quickly as we can. But it's not easy to sell private companies. So they, they wiped out the team. The team all left effectively. They then have done two secondaries deal to sell the bulk of their portfolio companies and healthcare and industrial assets. And in effect, GE no longer has a corporate venture capital unit. They still do licensing and some bits and pieces. But, you know, in effect, they've gone from being a poster child for the right reasons in many ways. Strong team, great deals, great name, a lot of you know capital in effect that they can do it and built up to basically making a decision to effectively wipe it out. You know, it's such an interesting story for many reasons, but it brings up, I think, things that I have written about, I think that you have written about, which is sort of this tension, and it's very known, I think, in this industry, this tension between the goals that you're setting yourself as a venturing unit or as a company having a venturing or, or really any kind of innovation activity versus the business cycle and the external pressures. Because, I mean, if you look at, and, and I'd be curious to hear if you think things have changed, but if you look at the past internet bubble, right? Everybody then tried to get on the bandwagon in the corporate sector, started a venture fund, and in many ways really started the first big hype cycle for venture capital. That was after or right and, and around 2000, many, many corporate venture funds were created. And then arguably we're now kind of coming out of another massive big cycle of creation of corporate venture funds over the last five years, I'd say. And you, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong on, on the edges of these statistics. But what interestingly do you think will happen 
this time around? Are we going to see again a contraction and again what the story about GE Ventures tells you? Or have we now moved into a different type of maturity where even though some obviously because of the business cycle will close for lots of different good reasons, the industry as a whole is becoming more hybrid in terms of the rationales for these units. And because, you know, th this used to be the story about corporate venture, they're slow, they get the worst deals, but they have the most money. So they always get some deals and then they eventually get cut typically after the first fund or before they start their second fund, right? That used to be something that VCs would say about corporate venture. Yeah. But then the story got rosier over the last, I guess, seven to 10 years. Where is the story moving now? <laughs> yeah, you're spot on uh, with your sort of history there, Trond. I mean, so um, venture capital is always, in general, being what's called a pro-cyclical industry. Effectively, it does more towards the end of an economic cycle and does less in a downturn or recessionary period. That's partly because VCs raise money from usually institutional investors. And when a downturn hits... You know, the denominator effect kicks in and they don't want to commit so much money, you know, or so many deals to go out. So VCs always been pro-cyclical. And then within that, say the 1999, 2000, 2001 period, the dot-com bubble, corporate venture capital has been even more pro-cyclical. They rushed in because they were looking for financial returns. You know, and then they rushed out in 2001 to when they thought, oh, my God, the financial returns aren't going to be there. And so the interesting thing, the reason why I was interested to set up Global Corporate Venture in 2010 was it was coming out of a financial crisis, big downturn, worse since the sort of, you know, the Great Recession, 29 to 33, the type of period. So big downturn. And I had a view that corporations and others would be more interested for strategic as well as financial reasons. And that was the best time to start doing venture investing was that 2010. Those who did venture deals between 2010 and 2015, what I called the golden age, um, you know, effectively, it's hard for almost any of them to have not made money. And they've also delivered strategic value on the whole because that's what it's doing. So the question, I think, can be broken down almost when we think around now, you know, we're going through the COVID crisis, the economy's going down by 10%, maybe more, who knows what's going to happen with a second wave. This is not a good economic condition. So you would expect a lot of corporations to do less, just like you would expect a lot of VCs would find it harder to raise money. But actually, if you look at the deals, both VC deals and corporate venture capital deals in the first six months of the year in the past first nine months in total now we're just coming into early October so you know we have some data for the Q3 period already and actually in the first nine months we see more than 200 corporates do more deals than in the entire 2019 period so we're That's seeing, astounding we're seeing a record number in the first six months of the year a record number of new corporations which had never done a deal do their first deal through the COVID period. And I think those two pieces point to two things. One, there's a lot of very experienced corporations and very experienced corporate venturing units, which understand that now is a better time to be doing venture deals. Prices are a bit lower. 
You're more likely to get the opportunity, the entrepreneurs you want. And there's a lot of understanding about getting the right entrepreneurs is significantly important if you want to have strategic and financial goals. And newer corporations, which have maybe been going, maybe we need to understand this open innovation piece. How do we do that? They're going, actually, COVID has disrupted our established business model. If we're going to find something else that we could do, we need to go out there and do it. So in the middle, you're right, there's going to be a group of maybe a thousand corporations which can't afford to do deals, are caught deer in the headlights. They don't quite know what they're doing. They haven't necessarily had the experience of being through a downturn before. And we're still expecting those to do less. If any deals, they might be broken up. You know, but we, if you look at the barbell between the two, we expect more corporations to come in and do new deals. And we expect the established, cash-rich, particularly tech, financial services, you know, healthcare, companies around education, things in real growth areas will want to do more. Because this is a potentially better time to be doing deals we've been warning for and hence the survival guide it was really clear when you look at economic statistics for 200 years that there's generally a downturn after a period of up reversion to mean so if you understand that and you realize that historically 10 years is a very long period to go without a downturn then it's only a question of time and so we've spent the book uh, you know, the survival guide book saying, how do you prepare for it? How do you use things like the GE as an example to make sure you've got committed capital? How do you organize your unit? How do you understand how you engage with your portfolio companies or find new deals when you're going through a downturn? So I'm uh, about to prepare for a second source or, or to, to visit a second community, the family office community. I'm, I'm going down to Dubai, actually, to uh, to go to something called the Ritosa, Ritosa. Summit. Yeah, are you? I, I'm part of that network. That's, they're great, aren't they? So I was interested in innovation capital overall because they that network is facing a similar sort of challenge because, you know, they were always, as a community, right, very... Um, KG, I would say, right? So, you know, people come to us, we have our own networks. But I, I'm suspecting that even for that network, uh, you know, COVID does throw in a bit of a curveball here because the market isn't functioning a, as it is. So, uh, but I, I'll throw the question back to, to, to the corporates because, yes, there were more, many more deals this year than maybe expected. But wouldn't you say that those were the deals from the startups that were already ready for corporate deals and that there could be a, a more of a problem going forward. In other words, and, and you know, I, I'm going to ask the family offices to sort of the same thing because deal flow takes, I mean, it's a lag indicator, right? Especially if you're looking at late stage startups. So the question is, what will happen in 2021? Not so much what's happening now, which really is a result of innovation that happened in 2020 you know, in 2019. What's your assessment of kind of the, the I guess, the medium term? Yeah. As opposed I mean, to sort of this snapshot in time. Yeah, I mean, it's a great crystal ball question, Trond. And, um, you know, I've definitely said... To say which I'd... you can say whatever, right? Because it's the future. So we can all just uh, speculate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's some interesting views. Like, a, do you know the sort of super, fast, super forecast a lot, uh, you know, that came out sort of 10 or so years ago. And 
there's some really interesting work about how you think about you know understanding forecasts of the future how do you sort of measure what your expectations are and, and then provide a feedback loop and i've definitely discovered i'm not very good at it you know some people are really good at it drums and i'm probably not one of those which are very good at it so i will caveat with that you know anything i say uh, about the future with if i knew what i was doing i probably wouldn't be a journalist i'll be trying to do it more practically than listen to other people do what you know so, um, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I think there's some really interesting things, you know, in terms of understanding the family office as well as corporates, as well as others. So I'll just give you a broad statistic, which perhaps will provide some context. So if you roll the clock back 10 years, 2010, the prior decade, most of the money going in towards entrepreneurs, fast growing entrepreneurs, came from VCs that raised money from institutional LPs. Take the 2010 period, there was about, according to PitchBook data, about $1.37 trillion invested through that decade in entrepreneurs. Now, VCs in that period raised about five $600 billion, there or thereabouts. So that implies that the majority of capital in the last decade came from non-traditional investors, corporations, government sovereign wealth funds, family office types, university venturing funds like MIT has the engine or whatever it might be. Oxford has Oxford Science Innovation. You know, there's a whole group of what used to be called non-traditional investors, sometimes tourists, you know, as a more pejorative term. And I think if you take a view that venture capital will shrink, that there's going to be less view, interest in innovation and entrepreneurship, and that money will decline because VCs will effectively find it, as they've always had, their cottage industry on the whole, which raise money from institutional LPs on the whole, which do less money. And it's always been the case that VCs struggle to raise very large funds and to scale globally. But the past decade shows that the industry can scale and can grow much bigger. If you look at the rounds that are happening, even so, they might have been rounds already set up, you know, six months ago or nine months ago. But these are still very large, hundreds of million dollar rounds. Ten years ago, a hundred million dollar round was the exception. There was one a month, one every few weeks. At the peak, 2015, 16, 17, 18, it was probably one every day. And now, even if you look at a daily track of deals, there's still that. And what that implies is that people with money, which is a lot, there are a lot of people, view innovation and entrepreneurship as an asset class which can scale. And it's not separated. It's part of the broader public-private asset class merger that's going on. The techniques that people use for corporate venture capital in private markets, public companies are using to take stakes in other public companies and say, we can help you. They are applying that same strategy. Sovereign wealth funds like Temasek aren't going away. Family offices are saying, if we're going to do this, we have to understand it and do it properly. So you're spot on. But most of those family offices get their money because partly they've been entrepreneurial in the past and they've raised a company, which is done well. Think like the Bertelsmann, you know, with the Moen family. Think around the Walton family for Walmart. You know, these are big potential pots of money they can invest. If you take the top list of the most 
profitable companies, the, the highest market cap companies, say in the US, think about Apple, think about Alphabet, think about Facebook. And then you look at who owns a large chunk of those shares and what do they do with their private family office money? You see, there's an overlap. They're active corporate venture capitalists and they're active family office investing in venture. So I think the question is, is do you take an old paradigm, which is VC is a niche lifestyle business, cottage industry, which can't scale globally and can't really support the entrepreneurs beyond a little bit of capital and advice? Or do you say it can actually professionalize, globalize and become an asset class, which is part of the broader $30 trillion you know, asset management capital markets world? And if you take the latter view, we're only at the foothills. Sure, it might go down a little bit, 10% down this year, maybe 5% up next year. Who knows? But ultimately, that's stuff at the margins. The big picture is that innovation and disruption and technology are not going away. Ideas do not go away. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a very savvy, actually, explanation, uh, explanation, Jim. I think what I was more worried about, and this is probably more of a short-term worry, is that the communication flow between early ventures and capital obviously either has to go online and which is what i wanted to turn to now or you know in the interim as we are developing our own trust in these digital tools the bigger deals sure they will go ahead because you know there are established metrics you know big 100 million corporate venture deals there, you know, even though they are startups, there still are some customer metrics. There's some readily established metrics that you can use for your investment and you can do true due diligence. What I was more thinking about is when non-traditional investors go in back perhaps earlier in the cycle, if that were to be necessary again, mm -hmm. The question is just simply what's going to happen to the early stage within within startups. Are there going to be are there enough good startups being created during the COVID period? And will actors such as family offices and corporations have access to those the way that they have sort of demanded to have access to them, you know, over the over the last few years? But 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 anyway, I mean these these would be speculations. I you know, if you want to comment on that, please, please do. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I've got fairly strong views, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, yes, it's the short answer. We are seeing family offices, corporations understand how they can invest in earlier stage companies and support them. You know, if you look at the volume of deals done, most of them are that seed A round. So this is usually pre much product development, certainly before much global scale out. And corporations as well as family offices, are investing at that earliest stage. And they're still doing so. By volume, obviously by capital, by value, most of it goes later stage, B, C, D, and, and later stage, because you know that's something that can then, they think, be scaled and, and, and rolled out globally. You know, so I think that's really exciting. I think what the opportunity is, is you know, ideas of entrepreneurship, you know, you know far better than I, given your sort of background and experience, you know, trying to helping entrepreneurs form and develop, you know, hundreds, thousands. When you look at the stats of people coming out of university or even at university, I think I might have heard it from you, actually, Trond, but so excuse me if I get it slightly wrong. But I think the average uh, student at MIT 
is involved with three startups during their undergraduate degree, something like that. Yeah, I think that's about right. So uh, no, I, so so I mean yes, that that access and presumably the interest of young people in innovating. I I, I am not saying that that's going to end, the, and, and I don't key. think we. But that's the key. Once you get this idea that there's this enormous bubble of people going, we have to be entrepreneurs. When I left Kings, it, you know, there was just no one even. It was never discussed. No one even thought about it. There were no role models. There were no cases. It was to say it was not even an option is to do a discredit to the fact that no one even knew that it could be an option. You know, now 70, 80, 90 percent of all students are either involved or thinking about entrepreneurship. So this wall of talent, which something can then be digitalized. And then there's this amazing amount of capital and interest in these ideas. We, you know, I think you could arguably say that we should, over the next few years, be 10x in from, you know, the 20 to 30,000 odd deals that are done each year. Corporations involved with 10% of that, 25% by the value of deals done. You know, corporations were involved with $135 billion of venture deals last year alone. Be similar, 100 billion maybe this year. So if you 10x that, over the next 24 months, which I don't think should be beyond the realms of possibility, because it's global, because it's everyone has to think about it. Who of your ex-students would join a large corporation here and now, even if there were jobs? Who would who could do it? So what is their options? What are their options? They But then suddenly you say the cost of starting or cost of thinking about applying your PhD or your MA or your undergraduate idea, what's the cost of it? What's the downside? So this phenomenal opportunity, which is COVID, people are at home, trundling away, working, playing a few computer games, doing whatever they might be doing. They can't go out. What are they going to do? They have to set something up. And there's this capital waiting for them. It's fantastic. Yeah. This could be an unprecedented opportunity. So I would say it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility to 10x. Now, whether that happens or not, who knows? But it should be it should be the goal of any society, any university, any corporate, any family office, any you know, any investor to say we should be taking what we did last year and going we should 10x it. Well, Jim, I mean, this is fascinating. We are certainly at a grand moment in history, right? It'll either be a, gr a grand implosion, which, I mean, there, there are people, you know, looking at it that way, or it will be, a, a, you know, a grand, you know, innovation moment, that's for sure, because the, the tests of the resilience of the system have shown unequivocally that the system isn't resilient, right? So we are looking for something beyond the system. Yeah, and uh, you know, so 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 I think you're right about that. Look, I wanted to talk a little bit about the strength of the network that you have built because one of the things, right, if you're trying to go digital and you haven't done well, one anything digital and you don't have a network, now you're basically back to the laws of nature and you have to build something enormously, uh, you know, creative and new. But in global corporate venturing, you were, I think, lucky enough to have built over you know these ten plus years a very 
cohesive and strong network of people who actually want to interact. And, and I know, because I'm part of this network, that we know each other personally at this mm. point, right? We, we, we know each other, yeah, we start friends. to trust oh. each other, yeah. and we're friends, many of us. How was it for you to transition to 100% digital with this network? And I did attend, actually, thank you very much, last week. So I have a little idea, and, and it's not the same. And I'm sure it will evolve. And, and you know, you will all hopefully have access to better online systems that are, you know, tracking and, and making us feel even more part of, of, of the community. But how, how was your experience of, of taking this digital? Yeah, it's a great. Um, you ask us some good questions, John. If you you should become a journalist rather than uh, <laughs> won't be as highly paid. I would definitely say that. But um, that's, right. that's uh, right. Yeah, I mean, so well, actually, I've got a book. Actually, we one of the people we had speaking last week was Ronald Cohen. So Ronald, um, who used to found Apex Partners, called the father of venture capital in Britain, and and his father's social investment because he does a lot of work on impact investment. He's, chairman of the global steering group so anyway when i was thinking about setting up company again bear in mind i left university worked for corporations effectively and then decided to set it up i kind of asked ronnie i said you know look how do you become an entrepreneur what what is it you know what advice would you give and he said ah funny you should say that i've just published a book so he very kindly gave me a copy of his book at uh and a national portrait gallery where he had the sort of launch there it was a great amazing event ronnie's amazing um yeah, and there was a nice line in there, which was second bounce of the ball. Think about something which everyone's talking about now and then roll the clock forward and say, what does that mean? You know, what's what will happen afterwards? Because that period between, you know, thinking about it now and executing it becoming more sort of topical gives you as an entrepreneur a narrow window. Once everyone's talking about it, the big corporations or investors or whoever else has an opportunity. If you're thinking about something before it's become the opportunity, then you as an entrepreneur, you know, have an opportunity to, you know, build that network. And I had a view that, in effect, news and publications would start to become much more focused on a small community, the network effects model that LinkedIn or Facebook or others applied, you know, 10 years before, you know, I thought that there was room to create something with a small cohesive unit. So in many ways, the digitalization of that network becomes possible only if you've sometimes built those relationships beforehand. So that was right. that was our sort of window. And then what we've tried to do in the digital forum last week, which took our live conferences, say we would do a conference in California or London, you've very kindly spoken uh, as well. So thanks, Tron. But you know, we'd have maybe five, eight hundred corporates. It's about ten trillion dollars of aggregate annual revenue, two hundred billion of venture assets and management. And then they would meet up and they would talk. They would share war studies. They would share deals. So all you've got to do to think about the digitalization is, in some ways, you know, what are they looking for? They want some thought leadership. They want to do some networking, and they want to get some sense of what else is going on, so they can swap some deals or you know, meet some service providers or others that can help them. And so that digital forum or the sort of the virtualization, we've run something called GCV Connect powered by Proceeder, which is an algorithm, you know, an AI-driven tool to enable people to source new deals from universities or established portfolio companies and find other investors that can do it. That digitalization of the two things, the, the content, and the sort of sharing of deals 
you know, is fantastic because that's why I think you can 10x it. When people have to individually fly and travel and meet people, it's so much less scalable. And that's why the old cliche was the VCs would only sort of invest, you know, within 300 feet of Sand Hill Road or wherever it was. thirty, Which miles. was true at some point, yeah. right? It was actually the model at some yeah. point. And yeah. it's a really good model. If you've got a local strong ecosystem and you suck in enough talent, why not? You know, but if you're going to globalize it, then actually the opportunity becomes, you know, using the digital tools. So in some ways, like you say, the starting point is always a little bit slow. People are trying to work it out. We're trying to work it out. But the opportunity set is 10x. Well, fantastic stuff, uh, Jim. Uh, my, my last question really to you is, uh, how does one uh, track corporate venturing? The obvious one uh, is going to be your pitch, obviously, you know, global corporate venturing, you have a platform. And we'll link that up and you can, you know, tell me a little about that. But also even beyond that, you know, what, what is the sane approach to, to trying to track this thing? Is it, uh, you know, you, you have a digital platform now, there are these events and obviously connecting to the community in some meaningful way. But what are the other outlets? You're a journalist. Like, what, what are the journalistic outlets that have any inkling about this community? I mean, presumably your answer is there wasn't any, so we built one. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but there must be somebody else to listen to when it comes to tracking corporate venturing. And, and, and where, do you, where do people go? Yeah, I mean, um, there's loads of, yeah, frankly, any good quality data or media publication now, you know, looks at corporate venturing because it's so important within the overall innovation and venture ecosystem. So whereas 10 years ago, I would say to like the Wall Street Journal colleagues and I would say, uh, I'm going to do this. And they looked at me and it was literally like, why would you do this? This is the craziest thing we've ever heard. You would leave a, you know, I had a great team, I had a great, you know, worked for a great company, you know, it was like, why would you do this? And, you know, and no one did, you know, and my starting point was to ask people and say, you know, right, Intel Capital does corporate venture and who else? You know, and you would talk to them and out of the three answers of any corporate ventures that they had heard of, you know, they would name Intel and then they would name two others. And after that, after about sort of six months of research, I had about 200, 250 corporates or names that are people. And so I was able to ask them, I was pick up the phone or drop them an email or find them through LinkedIn or whatever it would be. Whereas now I think almost every good publication, whether it's the FT, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal covers corporate venturing. They will understand the deals. It's in the papers probably most days. You know, most of the big data providers, whether it's a pitch book or Crunchbase or whoever, will look and do it. You know, there's some great, um, you know, sort of conference providers or general innovation sort of sources, whether it's Web Summit or Sifted or whoever else it might be. So I think the issue, you know, in some ways, if you're a generalist, is there's a load of good places to get a lot of really great information. You know, we're a specialist niche trade paper. We try to ask two questions. Who does it? What do they do? We tend to be fairly completist. We'll track 3,000 plus corporates. We'll track 3,000 plus deals, LP commitments. You know, our role is to be very niche, quite specific. But if you're all sort of just generally interested, ah, the world's your oyster. There's amazing journalists, far better than me or 
you know, uh, out there. Who- well, you're always very modest, but if you're a startup, Jim, and you're trying to track this community for a very specific reason, which is one, you know, you should always track corporations because they're your client. Uh, but two, you might want to track them because you you want their their investments, uh, you know, at some stage. Uh, th- does does your network provide answers that are going in that go in that direction as well? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, she's broadly looking for five things: capital, customers, product development, hiring, and an exit. Maybe a sixth one now: the uh, geopoliticals, regulatory issue. But those five things, on the whole, of you know, are are important. Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't deal with a lot of entrepreneurs, but we're fortunate to partner with a group like Proceder, you know, which has a, a relationships with a lot of universities and family offices and angel networks and CVCs and VCs, and they get a lot of deals in. They're a deal management software platform. So if you're an entrepreneur, you could go through the GCV Connect powered by Proceder platform, and then you can potentially get in front of three thousand plus corporations around the world which are interested yeah. not just in investing but also don't partner in the, the yeah. ideas that are coming in we work with the top 100 universities like leslie millen nickerson over at mit or you know sue siegel who came out of ge ventures just to join it up and now chairs the engine which is the mit's investment platform we'll work with the top 50 oecd type countries understanding their innovation ecosystems and we'll work with the main corporates you know, but then there's some great places out there like PitchBook. We partner with a PitchBook to help understand the general VC data and information. So, yeah, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you know, great. You know, it's hard. It's really hard being an entrepreneur. There's stuff that we can do to help. Reach out. You know, Jay Mawson at Morsonia.com. Happy to help. I might not be able to help too much, but I certainly think if you go through the GCV Connect powered by Proceeder platform, you'll have some great opportunities. And if we can, we'll invite you to join the stage and share your thought leadership with the big corporates. Thanks, Jim. This has been uh, immensely valuable. You're uh, sharing your uh, immense experiences with just tracking and shaping, Jim, both this community. Thank you very, very much. Well, thanks for the invitation, Trond. And, you know, I've learned a lot from you. So let me know anything I could do to help for you or your community. So thanks, Trond. You have just listened to episode 50 of the Futurized podcast with hosts Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of corporate venturing. Our guest was James Mawson, CEO and founder of Mawsonia, the publishing company producing global corporate venturing. In this conversation, we talked about the current state and the future of corporate venturing, the activity of big corporations who invest in startups in various ways during and post COVID-19. My takeaway is that corporate venturing has emerged as a more and more reliable and impactful asset class, born out of a desire to catch up on innovation, but maturing into a significant positive force for sustainable high-impact innovation, growing through shocks in the economy. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.